So as we come to the book of Philippians, we have been covering together as a church body how to get our minds right. That's really the theme of the book of Philippians. And when we look at our culture, when we look at the difficulty of really following Jesus, this is such a timely message, especially during this time of year. How easy is it for us to forget about the true meaning of Christmas? Interestingly, I saw a news story that points to the fact that in a poll, 68% of people think that Christmas should be more about Jesus. We've lost a lot of perspective. We've turned Christmas into something that really takes our eyes off of Jesus and focuses on something else. And so as we think about this passage of Scripture where it talks to us about making sure that our minds are right, that we are directed toward the right things, I think we need to think in terms of the immediate as far as focusing on the true meaning of Christmas, but also expand it beyond that and really think together about how we should incorporate living for Jesus in our lives on a daily basis. No matter what we face, no matter what context it's in, we need to be followers of Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, we have to follow the counsel of the passage of Scripture that we're looking into this morning, and that is we need to stand firm. We really do. As believers, we need to stand firm in God's truth if we're going to navigate all of the confusion of the world around us. That's why we want to talk about right thinking, about standing firm. Now, as we come to this text, we have just concluded the third chapter where the Apostle Paul reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. He reminds us that we eagerly await a Savior from there. And that is to dynamically change the way we live, the way we think, the way we act. If we are truly followers of God, seeking to stand firm in His truth, then we are going to radically change the way we think about everything and stand firm in God's truth. That's our call today. So let's look at the text and the first verse of the fourth chapter. And what we find is there are three areas that we need to stand firm in. By the way, if you're new to us, your bulletin has an outline and there are fill-in-the-blanks in the outline. That's where those yellow letters come in. And you're invited to follow along with the outline if you choose to. If you choose not to, that's fine too. But let's talk about this. We need to stand firm in the Lord through unity. When we look at this text, we find that the Word of God says here in the first verse of Philippians chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is a call to all followers of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder to us all that we need to take a firm stance together in our following of Jesus. You know, when I was a kid... We had a game on our playground, a blacktop. We would never be able to do this nowadays. But basically, all of the students would lock arms, and you'd take a stance, and there was a team on the other side, and they would send one person, and they would run, and they would try to break through the chain, right? Ever play that game? The objective was to keep the challenger out as you locked arms, right? 
And so what would you do if you're the challenger? You're looking down the line. You're saying, who's not paying attention? Who isn't really in a good stance? Who doesn't have a good hold on the people around them? And you'd find that person, and boom, you were through. It worked. Really, that's what we find today as we find our faith challenge. There are those who would go against our stand. And if we don't have our stand right, if we aren't connected to other believers in unity, if we don't have our minds in a place to where we're paying attention, guess what happens? We don't succeed. We don't stand firm together. We aren't able to keep the enemy out. The enemy being Satan who would stand against the truth of God and the things of God. So that's our reminder. And what we find here, after Paul tells us to stand firm in this first verse, he discusses a couple of issues that were going on at this first century church of Philippi. And he says this in the second verse, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, here we have a beautiful setting where there is a church fellowship And there was an issue within the fellowship. There were two people that were not able to get along. And unfortunately, you know what happens in most instances when we have people who don't get along? They enlist people in their cause. We go to others and we say, can you believe Yodia? First of all, her name sounds like a Star Wars character. (laughs) And secondly, she's just very difficult And then, can you believe Syntyche? She is so insensitive. And so you're enlisting people in your cause, and pretty soon that disagreement between two people spreads into a disagreement among many people, and as a result, the church doesn't stand firm in unity. Standing firm in unity is something that the Word of God talks about as of vital importance. We find it several times addressed here in the book of Philippians. For instance, look at the first chapter. By the way, there are pew Bibles on the backs of the pew if you would like one. And if you do not have a Bible, please take one of those with you. That's our gift to you. But as we come to this text, look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and listen to what the Word of God says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ... So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. Now listen, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you catch that? God is calling us as believers to stand firm together. Again, in the second chapter of Philippians, the second verse, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So this idea of unity, of believers coming together, getting along, that's essential in the Word of God. Now here in the fourth chapter, apparently, there were two people who were not getting along, and it grieved Paul. And what The Word of God calls Yodia and Syntyche to do, but by extension, what He calls all of us to do when there is a disagreement with another person is this, we are to agree in the Lord. Now, this is directed toward people who share the same faith. And what the Word of God is saying is, 
there's something more important than your differences, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We put it into perspective. Rather than looking and saying, you know, I deserve this. This ought to be something that, that, that just comes because of who I am, what I've done, how I've lived, any of those things. We don't stand on our own rights. We put in the bigger picture as to what's really important here, and what we find is really important is the Lord. What these women are being asked to do is to agree to disagree agreeably. We're human beings. We're going to have differences, right? There are going to be differences in preference, differences in approach, many differences that can comprise an argument. But what we're to do is to agree in the Lord. We are to stop and we are to say, look, we can agree to disagree on this agreeably. There's something more important than us, and that's the Lord. You know, sometimes we will take a ministry and we're involved in it. Because we're involved in it, it's vitally important, right? I'm in it. It's mine. I want to hold on to it. I don't want anybody horning in on my territory. So rather than taking that ministry and holding it with an open hand and saying, God, take it and use it as you see fit, let me decrease, let you increase, we do the opposite. We come in and we say, I'm important, and I need to be remembered as important, and I need to be viewed as important, so therefore, I'm going to oppose anyone who comes and does something different. Perhaps that's what was going on with Yodia and Syntyche, because here, the Word of God is telling them to set aside their differences, and the church is being asked to enlist in helping them to resolve this. As we go on in this text, we come to the second part of standing firm in unity, and that is that we support the work of the gospel above personal interests. Look at verse 3 of Philippians chapter 4. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored by my side and with me in the gospel together with Clement with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Do you see what the Word of God is telling the church at Philippi to do? Rather than engaging with women in dispute, and by the way, gender isn't an important part of this. Men get into just as many arguments as women. It's just an example that's given in this text. But rather than engaging and dividing up Work together as a church body to bring the two who are differing together. That's part of our responsibility as a church family to help people work through their differences. There are so many areas, so many ways that differences can rise up. But look at this third verse, the way Yodia and Syntyche are described. These are women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Now, what really stands out as amazing to me in this text is these weren't troublemakers. They weren't difficult people. They were sincere servants who were engaged in working side by side with the Apostle Paul as he carried on ministry, and yet 
Something had entered in to their working relationship and there was a problem. Paul wanted them to have perspective. Unity is far more important than petty differences. Let me repeat that. Unity is far more important than petty differences. When we perpetuate an argument, a fight, it divides. It does great harm. But when we look at that and we set it aside for the purpose of the Lord's work, saying God's work is more important than my frustration, then God can do amazing things in us and through us. So that's why the Word of God reminds them to resolve this issue. But it's the last part of that third verse that I think we should really look at. Look at what it says. It says they've worked side by side together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Here's a perspective. What we do here in this life, on this earth, is only for a short time. We spend eternity with fellow believers. Is it really that important that I need to perpetuate an argument when it's only temporary and when the person that I'm really frustrated with and angry with is in actuality a co-heir of eternal life? Don't I really need to put that into perspective and embrace them and love them and elevate them above my petty difference? That's what the Word of God calls us to, to come together and that kind of unity. Then we move on to the second key when it comes to standing firm. The second key to standing firm is stand firm in the Lord through prayer and supplication. And what we'll find as we look at this key is the fourth verse where we're reminded in verse 4 to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Now, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Rejoicing in the Lord means I have the Lord's position, who He is, how He should be adored, how He is much more important than me in perspective. Rejoicing means I take delight in the fact that the purposes of God are being accomplished. So what that means is God becomes the most important thing in my life. More important than my preferences, more important than my rights, more important than any aspect of my life, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. And listen, when I rejoice in the Lord, guess what happens? I will be shown to be a reasonable person. Look at this passage where after it says, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, in the fifth verse, the Apostle Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. You see, what the Word of God is calling us to is, if I'm really in right perspective where I'm viewing the Lord as the most important thing in my life, then I will be reasonable. I'm not going to be that difficult person that constantly asserts myself in a situation and demands that people 
toe the line in order to get along with me. I'm going to be reasonable. I love the way this is translated in the ESV, but listen to some of the other translations as to how they translate this particular passage. In the New English translation, it's gentleness. Let your gentleness be made known to all men. In the King James Bible, moderation. In the Living Bible, unselfishness and considerateness. In the New American Standard, forbearance, putting up with stuff. These are all mindsets that the Word of God calls us to. But you know, as I look at this and I see, yes, I I understand clearly what's being communicated, that I need to be viewed as reasonable. By the way, reasonable to other people, not reasonable to myself. We all think we're the most reasonable person in the world, right? But I'm to have a reputation of being reasonable so that when people mention Rob Wheeler, they say, now there's a reasonable guy. That's the way we're to be. We're to strive toward that. And the way that we pull that off, I think, is found in verses 6 and following. We need to remember, again, the Lord is at hand. A couple of ideas encapsulated in that. One, Jesus is coming again. We saw that in the third chapter. It was brought out with clarity that we're to live in light of that truth. But also, we are accountable before the Lord right here, right now, where I stand. I need to remember that I am accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to remember that at some point, I'm going to come face to face with the Lord is at hand because I'm going to give an answer for the decisions I've made, the things that I've pursued while in this life. Scripture tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due him for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I have to give an answer for the decisions I've made, the way I've treated people, all of those things. I give an answer to God. He will ask. I must answer. So how do I pursue that reasonableness, that forbearance? I think it's found in verses 6 and 7. We supplant worry with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Look with me at the sixth verse. After we're told to be viewed by others as reasonable, it says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here, the Word of God is calling us to allow the peace of God to settle in to our thinking process. When it says in the sixth verse, do not be anxious about anything, what it's communicating, I think, is profound. Isn't it easy to worry? Isn't it easy to get wrapped up in the things of this life and the things of this world and to become so invested in them that we get concerned when it looks like it may not turn out the way I hoped it would or thought that it should. That's worry. The Word of God has a lot to say about worry. Our Lord on the Sermon on the Mount had some profound things to say about worry. He said, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious for your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? This is what Jesus counsels us when it comes to worry. I'm not even to worry about whether or not I'll eat or have clothing. But give that to God. Something else Jesus went on to say. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious. In other words, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is reminding us that, really, worry accomplishes nothing. It doesn't change anything. It captures our thinking. It takes our eyes off of God's kingdom purposes. And it directs them somewhere else. Don't you find that you give yourself over to worry? I know I do. Something happens and I'm concerned about it. And rather than looking and saying, you know what? This is out of my control. I will place this in the hands of God. I try to fantasize about solutions to the issue that I'm concerned with. And so I key in on it with my thinking and, and I leave God out of the picture and my own solutions take front and center. And then as I systematically see my own solutions erode away, I become more worried and I give myself over to that even deeper. What God is telling us in His Word is don't do it. Don't go down that path. Don't Pursue anxiety and worry. And here's how we stop pursuing it. After we're told, don't worry. By the way, Jesus and the Word of God is not saying, don't worry, be happy. What it's saying to us is, there's a way to avert that kind of thinking. It's this. In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How do I stop from worry? I focus on the things of God. I go to Him in prayer. And there are three words that are used for prayer in this text. First of all, the general word for prayer. And that's a word that carries with it the idea that I am to worshipfully approach the God of the universe, and talk to Him. That's the idea of prayer. So when I'm worried, rather than looking at the circumstances and looking at my solutions, I stop. And I look to God. And I come before the God of all power, all might, who loves me and is all wise, and I give my worry to Him. I say, take this, God. Something else. We come to Him through supplication. Now, supplication very simply means that we make our requests of God. You know, some people have the misconception, oh, God's so busy, He doesn't want to listen to me. Listen, you're invited to come to God right here in this text. We are to come through prayer and supplication. In other words, I am to bear my soul and my heart before God. 
And I have to say, God, these are the things that, that I'm worried about, and, and I give them to you, and I trust you to work them out according to your wisdom and according to your will. That's the idea of supplication. Not saying to God, okay, God, here's how I see this work. First you do this, then you do that, and when you finally do this, then it will all be resolved. So you're going to do that, right, God? What am I doing? I'm masking the fact that I'm still worried about it, and I'm afraid that God won't do it the way I want it to be done. Prayer and supplication means I depend on God. I put the ball in His court. I say, God, take this and trust that He will. And that leads us to the last one, with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving looks back on the way God has provided for me in the past. Something that amazes me when you go through the Psalms and so often when David would write about his worry and his concern, you know what he did? He would stop that system of thought and go back to where God had delivered him in the past and he trusted God during those times. That is praying with thanksgiving. God, thank you for the way you have provided for me and cared for me in the past. And in light of that truth, I trust you now. That's the idea. We trust God with thankful hearts. If I have an ungrateful heart, and I look and I say, you know, God, I asked you to do it this way in the past, and you didn't do it, and I'm still mad about that, then I will never have peace. I would be bound by worry. But if I come and I say, God, you are God. You have a purpose and a plan that is right and good, and I trust you, and I've seen you walk me through all of these things throughout my life, and I trust you here and now with a thankful heart. That's what God wants us to do. Rather than worrying, depending on Him. And what happens when we do that? Look at verse 7. When I come to the place to where through prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, I give it to God, the Scripture says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a great promise? The Scripture presents this idea of the peace of God guarding our hearts as something that is promised to us as followers of God. To guard our heart means I am no longer assaulted by the worries and the concerns that will drag me down and bring me to the place of defeat. But I can stand before holy God and say, God, I place this in your hands and I am now at peace because it's with you. That guards my heart. The word guard is from a word in the original language that carries with it the idea of standing guard and keeping enemies out. So the enemy of anxiety, the enemy of discouragement will be held at bay because I focus on the God who is and I pray to Him. This is what God calls us to do in standing firm. So we stand firm in unity. We stand firm in setting aside anxiety and looking toward God through prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Third key, and this one will go quickly. We need to stand firm in the Lord through spiritual discipline. 
Look at verse 8. Now, in verse 8, we see counsel from the Word of God that we are to pursue a way of thinking that will lead us toward good living, righteous living, rather than unrighteous living. So look at what it says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What my mind focuses on is where I'm going to end up. You ever been driving and you see something off to the side and you're, oh, wow. Uh, One time we were driving and I saw a bald eagle up in a tree. And I was like, wow, that's something you don't see every day. And I look and lane drift, you know, cars honking, people saying unkind things and showing great displeasure. Why? Because I wasn't thinking about what I was doing. It was perfectly fine what I was looking at, but it wasn't what I should have been looking at. Listen, as followers of God, we need to keep our minds directed toward the things of God. And so here the Word of God is telling us what do we think about. We think about that which is true. In other words, things that really conform to God's truth, not things that poke fun at it, not things that would, would draw us away, but things that are in keeping with God's truth. Honorable. These are things that are worthy of respect. These are things that, gosh, I'm glad other people know I think about these things. That's the idea of honorable. Not like, oh, I hope nobody knows I think this thing. We need to think in that way. Things that are just. That which aligns with what God has said is right. Things that are pure, not defiled by sin and wickedness. Things that are lovely. In other words, things that will lead me to love others and to practice love. Things that are commendable, that is, things that will lift us up and lift others up, not drag us down. Things that are excellent, that which conforms to the highest standards, and things that are worthy of praise. In other words, things that bring honor and glory to God. My mind should go toward, I'm thinking about how great God is and what He does. And so we should live worshipfully. Folks, we need to guard our minds if we want to stand firm. There's a basic principle, garbage in, what's the rest of it? Garbage out. So the way we stand firm is to guard our minds, to have spiritually disciplined minds, being careful about what comes into our thought process, what we listen to, what we watch, what we embrace. We learn to stand firm by thinking about honorable things. Final part of this passage, we also stand firm by seeking to practice what we've learned. Look at the ninth verse. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. In other words, keep doing these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Some people think that by accumulating a whole lot of knowledge about God, I am now spiritual. That leads you toward spirituality, but it doesn't get you there. There's one more thing you have to do. Put that into practice. 
Word of God challenges us in James to not just be hearers of the Word, but to be doers. It says, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Or he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being not only a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the way God wants us to live. Not just coming in and becoming a warehouse of theological facts, but coming in and saying, this is who God is, this is what God says, this is what I do with it, now I guess I better do something with it. I'll put it into practice. I become one who practices these things. And in doing that, I experience the God of peace, His presence in a unique way. I experience fellowship with God. Listen, if I am ignoring what God's Word says, doing whatever I want to do, I am not putting into practice the things that God speaks to my heart about, how in the world do I expect to have fellowship with God? How do I expect to experience the peace of God that the God of peace longs to impart to me? I can't. God wants us to depend on Him, to stand firm in Him. He wants us to stand firm in unity. He wants us to stand firm by not being anxious, but by praying to Him. And He wants us to watch our minds be careful about what we allow to creep into our thinking. What is the focal point of my thoughts? God wants us to experience intimacy with Him. So my encouragement to you this morning is the encouragement that we get from the Word of God. Stand firm. Stand firm together. Stand firm depending on God. Stand firm putting into practice the things that God has taught you. May we all stand firm. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the reminder that it is to us all that we need to stand firm. Let us not get confused by the things that would distract us and keep our eyes off of you. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.